This stop is City Hall. Line number two. Welcome back to the Pacific Century, a Hoover Institution podcast on China, America, Asia, and the fate of the world in the 21st century. I'm Misha Austin, a fellow at Hoover, and I am joined by my partner and co-host, John Yu, professor of law at University of California, Berkeley, and a visiting fellow at Hoover. John, say hello to everyone. Hello, everybody. Well, we have a great guest. Uh, As usual, we're trying not to stay in the United States, but hopping around the world. Uh, So, John, please tell us who we have up today on the Pacific Century. It's our great pleasure to be joined by Eunice Yoon, who's the Beijing Bureau Chief chief at CNBC, uh, which is that TV channel that has all the stock prices ticking along at the bottom, telling you how much money you didn't make today by investing in the stock market. And I, I have just as a side note, when I, you know, I'm in Silicon Valley from time to time and you go to people's houses and CNBC is on all the time at home because they're all watching how big their portfolios are. And she was before that at CNN International. Uh, she since uh, she's uh, Korean and I'm Korean, I have to say she went to Brown and <laughs> Phillips uh, Exeter Academy. She, I, I have, uh, we got to start out with a personal question, which is. How come your parents didn't make you go to law school or medical school? What the hell is going on here? You became a journalist. I know. They, they did. <laughs> Tell us how you got to they, here, They did you want are. me to become a lawyer, though. <laughs> yeah, see, I knew it. I knew it. I know. <laughs> and here's some interesting facts about her before we get to the real questions is she, uh, this is the most interest, two interesting things I know about her is that she, for those of you who have been in the Seoul subway system, one of the most wonderful subways in the world. She's the English voice of the subway system. So when it says we're arriving at City Hall, she's the English voice. But of course, this being Korea, they would never trust a Korean American to do the Korean voice. She's the English voice. Tell us how that, that That is is so, so how did that happen? How did that that happen? That is so funny. Uh, Well, because I was actually freelancing in Korea at one point and um, thought, oh, wow, I could do a lot of different jobs. And and then I heard the the English voice on the subway, but at that time they were building it all out. And um, yeah. so it, it wasn't very consistent. So I just asked. And it was probably terribly mistranslated <laughs> too. Like you are arriving at the place with lots of people in black suits, by which they mean the government center. <laughs> Things like that. Yeah. Although I have to correct you on one thing, and that is that uh-huh. my voice is no longer on the subway oh. because Ooh. then since then, since I voiced it, the the subway system got even more complicated and elaborate. So they ended up replacing my voice before. Oh. I know. Oh. But it's really funny because I had what, to change with, with, my voice a little bit for like with the someone subway. from CNN International. <laughs> <laughs> No, I don't know, but it's just that, you know, because sometimes you have, when you present in, in front of the TV, you're kind of, you present yeah. the news, you have a different voice. And then when you're on the subway, they said, oh, no, that's kind of too harsh. You have to be softer. So, so I would have to say, like, this stop is City Hall. <laughs> Tell us how you got from uh, doing voiceovers in Seoul, Korea, to one of the choice journalism jobs in the world, which is Beijing bureau chief <laughs> for a major network. How did you get from there to... 
Beijing. Well, it's so interesting. But, well, I wanted to be a journalist at a really young age. I mean, before, maybe when I was a preteen, just because I, I, I just thought that it was such a great type of job. You could be on location. I loved watching TV news and thinking that you're in the middle of it all. And then and then the ultimate goal is that you're serving the public and that you're the idea um, that that I believe then and I actually still hold today is that that uh, you want to inform other people about what's happening around the world. And ultimately, the goal is is to get to a place where people understand each other better. So that's that was my thinking back then <laughs> in my early mm -hmm. teens and then and then today, too. So how did you get your first uh, big break in journalism? Because uh, I uh, once was an amateur journalist, and the hard thing is right, getting your first yeah. start. Well, I did uh, all the stuff that I guess you'd want to do when you were younger. I, I mean, I did internships and, and that sort of thing. But but where I, I really did get into the break into the news was um, in Colorado, actually. It was after Brown, um, when I was at Brown towards the end, I, I, there was just a big broadcast book. It's a, a book that just has a list of all the different stations throughout the United States and in places like Guam. And I just went alphabetically because I didn't have any ties really to the industry and went from Alabama, Alaska, Arizona, Arkansas, California, and Colorado, all the way to Wyoming and applied to every single station that was sort of small that I thought I might be able to get a job in. And then I was jobless for several months because I kept getting rejected. And then finally I went from Wyoming back to Alabama, Alaska, Arizona, Arkansas, California, Colorado. Wow. And then when I got to Colorado, I got lucky and I ended up with a job in the master control room. Um, where you're switching commercials and doing that sort of thing. And I packed my bags and went. <laughs> okay, last question about your background before you, and actually this is a good segue into what's going on in China is uh, one other tidbit you say in, is that your dream reporting assignment is in Detroit. Det I think there are probably a lot of people who'd be happy yeah. to trade assignments with you. <laughs> and the reason you give is because you're a geek about the car industry and you want to see where the car industry all started. Well, yeah, uh, no. So it's... you do a lot of coverage of the Chinese car industry and then the you want to see the US car industry. Yeah. What's going on with the car industry? <laughs> do they even make cars in Detroit anymore? Do they even have engines stop, in them? Stop. Don't they have like little No, we need to ask about the Chinese electric cars. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's what I mean. this like, is a huge this is a great yeah. segue. So this is this Chinese truck car industry. What's going on with yes, them? Sir. Are they gonna have gas in them anymore? <laughs> well, the reason why What's I was I was in, I'm I am very interested in seeing Detroit is the same reason why I'm also, I, I was also really interested in going to Las Vegas. And that is because I have been in Asia for a long time reporting and seeing the, um, like a ton of growth in the car industry, right? Just like, just explode out in Asia. And then we would always be talking about the, the big three in Detroit and I've never been to Detroit. So I, I'm really interested in in seeing it and um, and kind of figuring out where it all began. And then with Las Vegas, you know, I was reporting in Hong Kong and Macau quite a bit as well. And then in Macau, I I saw you know the whole casino industry develop. And so it's just it's just like I'm reporting on the opposite side of where 
you know, I guess a lot of Americans would be reporting on on uh, casino, the casino industry or the car industry. And so I'm, I'm just really interested in, well, I finally got my dream to see uh, Las Vegas, uh, but I also have this, this uh, strong interest in going to Detroit. Well, you know, it would actually be really fascinating. We don't have a lot of those comparisons to actually do, a, yeah. you know, a series on the American car industry versus, you know, whatever. It's very international now, but versus the Chinese and the gambling. And I, th- I think it'd be, it'd be great because we often treat these things in isolation. And so, you know, people mm-hmm. who think about China, they'll they'll think about it, but they'll never really think about it in, in, you know, or the Americans will never think about it comparatively. So hopefully you'll get to that. But before you do, we, we <laughs> you know, we do want to take advantage of the fact that you're there, you know, you're on the ground. We talk to a lot of folks who uh, are in DC. In fact, um, we just talked with the commander of Indo-Pacific Command, uh, Phil Davidson, uh, who's actually stepped down. Uh, but, you know, we're, we're talking to people who deal with a lot of the, the politics. They, they think about it from a D.C. perspective or an, or an academic perspective, um, but very few with your, you know, boots on the ground experience of, of walking the subways and, um, you know, hopefully one day doing the Beijing subway announcements. But that's that's in the future. <laughs> so so what you know, what can you tell uh, you know, our, our listening audience about, let's just start really big. What is, what is the mood in China? Obviously the mood in America is, you know, tense, it's fraud, it's worried in a lot of ways. What is it like in China? Well, I think that there's a sense here that there's an inevitability that, uh, the U S and China are headed for some type of collision. I think that there is a hope that it's, not going to be a military one, of course, but uh, that there is a clash of ideologies. And a part of that is because people do see China uh, growing in strength and um, that the U.S. isn't going to be the the only one in town um, to push China around um, from China's perspective. So um, there is a sense that there that there is you know, going to be a decoupling as well. And that's something that, that um, in, in my conversations, most people do not want to see. I mean, I, I just spent, you mentioned cars and, and electric vehicles. Um, just a couple of days ago, I was in Shanghai for the auto show and talking to various executives there. And, uh, you know, there are a lot of companies and people who still want to do a lot of business with the United States. They see the, the opportunities, especially with the Biden administration, prioritizing climate. They see, um, you know, that they want to list on the U.S. stock exchange, for example, because the U.S. stock exchange has such, um, it's such a liquid market with, you know, a lot of different investors. And, and uh, I mean, the U.S. has a lot to um, to to uh, uh, give them so so they people don't want to see this type of decoupling. At the same time, there's sort of feeling that the U.S.-China relationship is so sensitive. I mean, if, even when I was talking to people there, some of them I was just trying to get convinced to go on camera, and um, you know, I'm just I'm so used to rejection now, especially reporting in China, and and uh, yeah, they're just saying it's just too sensitive. Even if they do want to have a conversation, or even if they know that it's good to be talking to the, the foreign media. So this the sense of inevitability, um, is is it twinned with a sense of confidence in China? Do they feel, I mean, they're worried about what it might entail, but is there confidence about China, confidence about the leadership? I think there there is. I mean, I think that we could, I mean, it's, it's very, I, I find it very difficult to to fully grasp what public opinion is here because there aren't any real opinion polls that I think uh, can be trusted since 
everything is kind of following one one narrative and and anything that is opposite to that narrative um, essentially opposite Beijing's narrative eventually becomes censored so it's hard to really know what public opinion is but um, but yeah I mean there is you you see it that there is quite a bit of nationalism and it's on the rise and I think that um, that became quite that's become evident over the past several months, but also when um, you know the the Biden administration had its um, uh, very you know its meeting in Alaska with um, Chinese officials, that uh, that was a time when um, here we had a lot of you would see a lot on on social media and state media a lot of cheering for that particular um, uh, I would say confrontation, and uh, that's because. So, so they did yeah. their their work. They liked it. Oh, they yeah. thought it was showed China in a good light. Really, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you know, China looked from China's from Beijing's perspective, and then I think from a lot of people's perspective here, very, very strong. Um, it was, I think, a moment when um, China was saying to the United States, you know, we're not we're not here to be pushed around anymore. We're a great power. You know, we're we've arrived. You guys can't condescend to us anymore. And um, there were I mean, a lot of memes on social media about uh, the Chinese officials and what they said and, um, you know, how they were uh, approaching and their stance even um, uh, towards uh, uh, the two U.S. officials, of course, Jake Sullivan and, and uh, Antony Blinken. Um, so I think that there there is this, this hope that China will be able to um, approach the U.S. In, on a more equal footing. And um, and you could see that uh, throughout, uh, you know, like online and also in private conversations as well. Though, of course, you know, China isn't one monolithic voice. So right. there are people who are, um, you know, concerned about where China is headed as well. So what what then is the view of the Biden administration? Do, do they um, first of all, actually, let's back up for a sec. What was what was the view of the Trump administration? And. Uh, was there uh, relief that Trump's gone? And, and what do they think about Biden? Uh, what do they think about the U.S. under Biden? Well, I think with Trump, it was a mix of, um, on the one hand, you had people who thought he was, his his approach was, was very tough and exhausting. And um, I think that uh, they were, you know, getting hit on, on issues such as tariffs, which um, from China's perspective were, wasn't necessarily helpful for the relationship, um, but um, but at the same time, um, I think that there were there was also a group that felt that he, um, President Trump was was almost easy to to um, work with because um, from Beijing's perspective, they could point to him and say, "Well, look at all this this chaos that's being created by the United States and." China's system is so much more stable and reliable. We are the state's person. We are the, the adult in the room. We don't just uh, make unilateral decisions. And I think that's what um, in some ways helped Beijing's status and then did change, I think, uh, with under uh, President Biden. I mean, with the Biden administration, from a lot of the conversations I have here, people are surprised at how tough he he is in terms of his approach towards China. Uh, there was a thinking that um, because he is perceived as a much more traditional politician that he was going to approach China in what was seen as more traditional policy, um, you know, from, from the U.S. And instead, I mean, there is, of course, uh, you know, uh, uh, that 
that uh, sense um, that that um, President Biden does convey. But at the same time, um, you know, his his stance on China is is much more, I think, unforgiving than uh, when he was vice president. That right. um, that that it's that there, the it seems as though the the approach is more of an eyes wide open kind of approach in terms of the way China treats. Um, Say Hong Kong or treat certain sensitive issues such as Hong Kong, um, Xinjiang, those issues that Washington is really interested in having a discussion on, or for example, domestic policy in China, um, which um, does affect global markets um, such as subsidies or or other other issues such as that. So, so I think that there is there is a a feeling that that um, President Biden is is going to be much tougher. And I was talking to some executives at, at the car show who were, who were telling me that they thought the relationship was going to get worse between the U.S. and China. And I was surprised. Mm-hmm. Um, and they said it was just because President Biden is much more consistent in his approach. So what I think one of the things that Americans don't really get uh, about China is just you know, what what it's like today inside with the economy, you know, is it is it really as strong as as people think? And, you know, what was the effect of uh, not only the internal, but the global slowdown from uh, the, the pandemic? Um, you know, what's your sense reform, you know, that Xi Jinping promised that uh, seems in some ways to have stalled out? What, what, what can we understand about the strength of the country that clearly we're facing? Well, I think that in terms of in a relative sense, that China has recovered um, economically uh, from the, the the depths of the pandemic. Um, you do see uh, people, you know, just get it going around. Stores are open. People are going to restaurants. I mean, it's just like there is a lot of activity. Um, there is, um, of course, the tried and true um, true uh, policies that that China. Um, likes to to um, support and you know in terms of like building up infrastructure, creating mm-hmm. jobs, and and that sort of thing. But um, you know it's it's difficult to tell because there's always a question about exactly how accurate uh, some of the data is out of China. But but um, but there's concern about uh, debt. There's definitely mm-hmm. concern about debt, and and you could see that there is has been a lot of waste, and even the government itself is is trying to scale back some of that that um, spending and what's perceived as waste. So, so um, you know, how vulnerable is it? Um, it's, you know, I think it's difficult to say, but um, from what most people, when they, they watch the Chinese economy, think that at some point the government, because it does have levers of control, is able to come in and, and sort of manage things so that it doesn't necessarily fully collapse or anything like that. So, um, right. Yeah. So, so one area of that spending that you mentioned that obviously gets a lot of attention here is on the advanced technologies, artificial intelligence, of course, the chip making, and and the Biden administration, as you noted, has pretty much maintained the pressure on uh, on the the tech companies, you know, listing a number of them as national security threats, including Huawei and ZTE. Um, you know, again, what we only see it through a filter. What what is what do you know from being there about the strength of these of these industries? Are they really worldwide? Are they world beating? Um, do we worry that in five years China will overtake us in chips and in AI they'll be dominant? What's the, what's the true story? Well, I think that the um, the five year plan that and then of course the 
the other multi-year plans that that China has put out. Um, most um, executives that I was talking to, that I've been talking to, say that it's just so heavily weighted in trying to um, emphasize the the need to be self-sufficient, especially when it comes to technology. So when you look at the way that the plans have been drawn out, um, it looks as though and I think that Beijing is very determined to be able to invest and make sure that um, that China isn't in a position where it's found itself in, um, you know, in the past couple of years, where it's much more vulnerable to the um, the tougher approach of other countries. So, um, especially because President Xi, as we see him moving along, that he is um, that that because of his his approach um, is much more combative than previous administrations, that he has to make sure that the economy is, is um, you know, worrying along and, and that it's, it's strong and that um, he is self-sufficient in, in um, various industries, especially when it comes to technology. So given that, that combination of the political and the, and the economic um, aspects and the goals, that, that, uh, that it would be inevitable that they would um, be investing in these in these industries to the point where they could be competitive. I mean, it's it's hard though because when you look at China's history, um, there has been a lot of money that has been put in in different industries that haven't been as successful. And I would say, say like for example, the car industry, that a lot of the foreign car makers were invited in, and um, you know there were a lot of joint ventures and there was a lot of um, a lot of Chinese car companies that were popping up and and competing. And in the end, um, it's still the foreign car makers that were, were dominating. I mean, things are changing now uh, because of the advent of, of electric vehicles um, as opposed to the combustion engine, which has been you know, dominated by, by foreign car makers. So, so um, you know, China is in a place where it could actually change things. And I think that's one of the reasons why you see such an emphasis on EV, because it's not just, oh, well, we want to help save the environment here. It's actually we want to you know, decrease the pollution, but we also want to switch things over so we are not as reliant on the combustion engine, which we have not been able to really master in the same way that the uh, Americans have. Uh, you'd think after a century that that would be easy. You'd think, and, and the EVs would be hard. So, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I've been in and out of these factories, and I'm always marveling at how difficult things are. I just think, wow, I've, you know, all the like these little screws are so difficult. <laughs> or trying to get your phone. No, really, I was in a, a factory with smartphones, and I, and they were talking about you know, all the different parts that are in your smartphone and, and what helps cool your smartphone and all of these things. And I thought, wow, this is really tough stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I'd like to ask about Xi Jinping in a second, but before that, since we've been on the economics, just a quick question on the belt in the road, um, the one belt, one road. And, and uh, you know, there's there's a lot of sense that it was an overcommitment, that it's been a drain uh, for the Chinese, a lot of, of wasted money, um, whether or not it's achieved either the trade or geopolitical uh, goals that it had. What What's the sense there of the One Belt and One Road and, and your sense having, you know, sort of looking at it and covering it? Well, I think more recently, um, I, I think there's been more, fr there's been frustration. I mean, just because what you were just more privately, I'm saying mm -hmm. that um, that money has been wasted, that it hasn't really uh, been as helpful for China. 
Um, there have been, I've had talked to people who said that, you know, that money should be spent in China. Why are we spent, why are we giving it to, to other places? And it's not necessarily something that's going to be beneficial to us. Mm-hmm. So, so there is a sense of frustration here. Um, but, but I think that um, these are usually not the decision makers, you know, are when I'm talking to people, they're, they're, they tend to be on the private sector or kind of lower level, um, you know, officials. And so not really the decision makers. And I think at the end of the day, it's going to be President Xi Jinping and, and um, you know, the top leadership, they're going to see that Belt and Road is something that is an initiative that, that China needs to pursue because, um, as you mentioned, there are not only, uh, you know, economic reasons or trade reasons to be able to build out, um, you know, and revive an old Silk Road. It's it's also because you want to have more uh, geopolitical influence as well. So speaking of that, then, is the question of Xi Jinping. Is it all about Xi? I mean, is this really the guy who's, um, you know, definitely dominating it all? Is there any opposition to him? Uh, you know, we, we saw a report that a piece by Wen Jibao had been uh, banned, uh, you know, censored mm-hmm. a few weeks ago. Um so wh- what should we know about um, Xi? Is he going to be around as long as Putin? Well, that's what all the signs are pointing towards. I think, uh, you know, he's he, in theory, is in his last 18 months, in theory, um, because there's supposed to be a change um, of administration uh, at the end of next year. Um, and in a the past, uh, one might think that, um, you know, the leader of the country would be starting to head into kind of a lame duck status. Um, but uh, that is um, not what most people think here. I think most people think that he is going to be in place um, for a while, um, could be decades. Uh, that um, and, and when you were talking about opposition, you know, it's, I think there, there is, uh, it's just that uh, I mean, and and you could see it in uh, you mentioned that the Wen Jiabao um, uh, report, but also um, just uh, based on how many uh, purges there have been in the security apparatus. I mean, that's one one um, um, development that people kind of point to and say that he is still battling a lot of um, people who are are not happy with with what he's been doing. And his more um, confrontational approach um, internationally, so there is there is opposition, but whether or not that's going to be allowed enough um, to to change his course, I think is is still a big question mark. Let me ask you some uh, questions about what it's like to be a journalist in uh, China these days, because I think it must be difficult. Do you um, worry about your reports ever causing you to get detained by the Chinese government or? Uh, expelled from the country? Uh, do you worry mm-hmm. about uh, the security services following you around to see who you're meeting with or, you know, intercepting your emails to see who you're talking to? What, well, how do you, how do you uh, deal with these kind of worries about uh, being a journalist in a, you know, an authoritarian country? <laughs> um, well, I've been here for a long time, so I'm used to um, some, I'm used to some of the, the kind of tougher environment, but yeah, it's, it's, it's been maybe the worst that I've seen in, um, definitely the 10 years that I've been here. But, um, I mean, a lot of old, like real veterans who've been around since the eighties say that it's even worse than 1989. Um, 
Yeah. Wow. Just that it's, um, you know, it's, it's, it's quite, it's really hard to get people to talk on camera. Um, I mean, it's hard to get people to talk, I think, in as a print journalist as well, but um, people don't want to talk. They don't, and I understand it. I mean, a lot of times they don't, they just say, we don't want to talk to you because you're a foreign journalist. Actually, recently it's been, we don't want to talk to you because you're an American journalist. Um, there was um, one week where I had three interviews cancel in a row, which is really, really frustrating because, um, because I'm an American journalist. And um, they told me that. <laughs> we have that all the time. <laughs> but that's just because they don't like you. You the club. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. They're not scared of us. Yeah. They just don't like us. Oh, yeah. No, so it's, it's that part is hard. And, and also it's just the surveillance gets really tiring after a while. Um, and before, um, for example, before when um, you'd go to someplace, um, sensitive, for example, like Xinjiang or something, you would expect that police would come and visit you in the hotel, just want to check in, make sure that you're who you, you know, say you are, you are where you are, you know, and you kind of get used to the, a certain idea that you're going to be followed around a bit. But, um, but now it's just, it's just all the time, even in places that are, that traditionally have not been sensitive. You know, I just, um, I was in Wenzhou recently and you know, this is not a, an area where you would uh, think that you get a police visit. And, um, you know, I just I was in my hotel for a couple of minutes. And this is after, um, you know, when you land at the, the airport, uh, you know, showing your passport or signing a document and then going to the hotel and then, you know, having the passport and then the picture taken and then going to the room and then the police come over and they just you know they want to take another photo of my passport they want to take a photo of my visa they want to take a photo of me in in the hotel room you know and it's just it just I'm laughing about it now but it's actually it gets really tiring and um and also just walking around the number of cameras that are up now and uh it's just it starts getting exhausting and there's um even a a screen that came up across from my house where um, it, it, it's, it's meant to shame people who, um, who jaywalk. So um, like they'll show your, yeah. So they'll show your picture, um, you know, and the number of times that you've, you've uh, jaywalked uh, in that area. Really? Like yeah. across, like just on normal buildings, there's like, here's the, the jaywalkers, the trash droppers, the, People yeah, who don't pay the meter for their name. car. <laughs> but it's your picture. <laughs> That's incredible. It, so it's just like people in the neighborhood, like, so they know who lives in that area. Yeah. And they just keep posting your face with your. That's, that's the social credit the system. That's yeah. amazing. Well, but, but your name is, but your name isn't there. At least just my name picture. wasn't there, but then you, but, but your picture. And then it says like how many times you've crossed the, the street illegally. Really? Um, and so wow. it just. Yeah, but it's not it's not something that you see it, at every single street, but it's just that 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 screen popped up um in the past year. And so it's just it's more and more and that that type of thing starts to to wear on you a bit. I mean, part of it is because of the pandemic, so we have to scan, you know, our QR codes in different places and and so, you know, it's just part of it is the pandemic, but part of it is not the pandemic and it's just it's it's Do you think just that the um, pandemic is given the yeah. Chinese government sort of the 
grounds to accelerate what they were going to do anyway. Hmm. Yeah, you know, in I terms think of so. collecting information on everybody, using it to data mine and figure out who they like and don't like. And yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah. I think I think that it it has accelerated it. I mean, it's hard not to. I mean, on the one hand, you kind of understand um, wanting to keep track of so for contact tracing and that sort of thing, but um, but it's just the extent of it that that starts to to wear on you a bit as a, as a um, person who lives here. But but then, yeah, I mean, you had mentioned that as a journalist, it's it can be quite tiring. Well, I, you know, sorry, we've gone a little over time. This has been great. I ho- hope you come back. But before we let you go. We think we would ask you oh, to tape an intro for our podcast, and then we're going to use it over and over again. This is going to be great. So you heard the intro, right? We're the podcast about China, America, and the Pacific. So do a great one for us so that we don't have to listen to Misha Oslin in his oh. professorial voice. Bore everyone to sleep right before the show Misha, even starts. Misha, are you going to take that? <laughs> or, or, or John, who every time he does it, it's, it seems like it's the first time. He doesn't even know what show no, he's I on. No, I know. I think so, man. <laughs> no, I wouldn't want to take that away from your listeners. Uh, the they're, joy. They're listening for you. The, yeah. the joy that they have. I'm just around. Yeah. Well, I- instead of that, we're, we're still going to We're still going to try to get you to do it. But instead of that, we, we, we did have a final question, uh, which was, since you're a car fanatic, what would be the one car that if you could, you could drive or even own? What is it? What's the dream? car for Eunice Yoon. Oh man. No. <laughs> no, I don't know that no. car. <laughs> yeah. I don't know because I was just looking I, I don't I don't want I, you know I report on these companies so I can't really say. Is it a McLaren? <laughs> it's not a McLaren. It's not a Gullwing, you know, DeLorean from nineteen eighty seven. No. Yeah, that would be nice. <laughs> there you go. There you go. All right. Well, we'll we'll have to get back to you so we can we can figure that out. Uh, we're we're still going to work on you for the intro because we need a professional intro in the show. We also need professional interviewers on the show, but that's a separate story. Uh, but we are we're thrilled, uh, Eunice Yoon of CNBC, that you took some time to talk with us. Most importantly, I think to give us you know the view from from being on the ground, which um, which we don't get. Uh, and even if it's frustrating for you and they're taking your picture all the time, at least uh, you could uh, you know talk to us about what it's like to be there. And we hope you'll come back and, and tell us more and we'll be able to get to things like the pollution issue and the one child policy, which apparently is, it, it's still effectively enforced, though it's not officially enforced because the population's going down. Lots to talk about, but thanks so much, Eunice, for joining us on the Pacific oh, Century. Oh, it's such a joy. You guys are so charming. Oh, well, now you're definitely got to come back and first guest ever to say that. So for John Yu, I'm Mish Oslin. Thank you for joining the Pacific Century. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts, or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.